Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Asaf Raz, a research fellow at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School. We'll be discussing his paper, Mandatory Arbitration and the Boundaries of Corporate Law, which I'll link to in the show notes for the episode. Asaf, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a longtime listener of the podcast, and it's really an honor to be here today. Well, it's always great to have a listener join the show as a guest. And I wonder, before we get into the meat of the paper, if you might give us a little bit of a background on just what mandatory corporate arbitration is, how might it work, and what would be the legal theory or foundation for why it might be something that we could see sometime in the future? Right. So, first of all, it's important to note that my article is really about two different concepts. The first is mandatory arbitration, and the other is corporate law. So far, mandatory arbitration did not become part of the corporate law landscape, meaning that most corporate law disputes are being carried out in courtrooms as opposed to in mandatory arbitration. But my article explains why these two concepts might intersect in the near future, and just as importantly, why they should not intersect. So let's start by talking about the first concept. uh, For If you ask most people on the street, if somebody breaks a contract with you, can you sue them in court? Most people would say, sure, after all, that's what courts are for. However, in the United States, a somewhat different situation is developed. Over the last few decades, the U.S. Supreme Court has been giving an extremely broad interpretation to the Federal Arbitration Act, uh, which is a federal statute that has been first enacted in 1925. And the U.S. Supreme Court has been basically saying this. If you are the stronger party in a legal relationship, For example, if you're an employer or a service provider, let's say you provide cell phone service, you sell products, etc., you can simply put an arbitration clause in your contract with the weaker party, which might be employees, consumers, etc. The most common types of arbitration provisions do something that I would say is quite cynical. They actually defeat the purpose of arbitration as a mechanism for dispute resolution, and instead they are meant to prevent people from having their legal disputes resolved, either in court or in arbitration. For example, in the well-known AT&T v. Concepcion case from 2011, the Supreme Court said that an arbitration clause in a cell phone contract can eliminate the right to bring any class action, even though there is simply no logical, practical way to resolve many types of disputes without a class Think about, for example, a $30 lawsuit, which is what many people have when they have a dispute with a cell phone provider. You have a dispute over stuff like 30 bucks, 100 bucks, not stuff you would go uh, to court and sue over. But when you have an aggregation mechanism like the class action, you can get your remedy. And this is precisely what mandatory arbitration eliminates in the US. Obviously, this generates a lot of injustice and there is a lot of academic writing uh, for example, Professor Marguerite Jen Radin, who has written a wonderful book called Boilerplate from 2013. Despite all of this, there is one border, there is one uh, silver lining that the uh, U.S. Supreme Court maintains. It has been consistently saying that there must be a contract if you want the Federal Arbitration Act to apply in a given situation. 
So, for example, if you committed an act of tort, you cannot invoke the Federal Arbitration Act because there was no contract. There is a little bit of a discussion, well, can you look at, let's say, a trust instrument as a contract? But the things that the Federal Arbitration Act applies to really are what we would call contracts in the old common law sense of offer, acceptance, consideration, all of that kind of stuff. And now we cross over to the second concept that my paper deals with, which is corporate law. And how would mandatory arbitration apply in the corporate law? Let's say the directors of a certain corporation wish to make their conduct much harder to attack in court, which mostly happens through shareholder lawsuits, right? If a shareholder has found that the directors have done something bad, they can file a class action or a derivative lawsuit. All the directors need to do to really make it much, much harder to be scrutinized in court is they have to put an arbitration clause in the corporation's charter or bylaws saying you cannot file any class action, you cannot file any derivative action. Oh, and in case you manage to somehow bring a lawsuit, after all, the arbitrator also must defer to our business judgment, the director's business judgment, meaning, in other words, the arbitrator has to defer to the very action that is being challenged in the arbitration. Obviously, in this kind of scenario, not many cases can be filed or can be successful if they are filed. So this did not happen. In corporate law, this did not happen until today. Uh, Compared to other areas such as employment law and consumer law, we don't see mandatory arbitration clauses. Furthermore, Delaware, the Delaware legislature in in, uh, 2015 has said, we know that mandatory arbitration would not be good in the corporate law context, so we actually prohibit it. You literally cannot put mandatory arbitration clause in a corporate charter or bylaw. In the article, I discuss why that situation might soon change, and I also explain why this should not and cannot happen under existing law. Mandatory corporate arbitration for governance-related disputes is something that theoretically we might see, but for the most part, we don't see it really at play within firms today. But I wonder what would mandatory corporate arbitration mean for corporate governance? Would it have a positive impact, a negative impact, or maybe a more nuanced impact? So I believe the effect would be largely negative. To understand why, let me discuss for a second what would be lost if mandatory arbitration became part of corporate law. Today, corporate litigation is the foundation of a very large swath of corporate governance. Things like breaches of fiduciary duty, defensive measures against takeovers, various kinds of inequitable conduct, all of these things can only be effectively addressed by litigation in open court. There are unique corporate-specific mechanisms, such as the derivative action or the Section 220 books and records inspection, that can practically only take place judicial assistance. You cannot really achieve these things through private ordering or through arbitration or other means. And obviously, as people in the corporate law community know, much of these scholarly discussions we carry out about things like the MFW decision, poison pill, and corporate purpose are largely discussions about what the Delaware courts have said in various cases. And equally, they are discussions about what Delaware courts should say in the future. Furthermore, litigation also has a very strong deterrent, and it sheds a lot of sunlight on what corporate fiduciaries do, to paraphrase uh, Justice Brandeis. Take, for example, a case called America's Mining from 2012. 
In that case, the Delaware courts have awarded a remedy of more than $2 billion against a controlling shareholder who engaged in self-dealing transactions. If the corporation had a mandatory arbitration clause, saying, for example, that you cannot bring any derivative action, and the America's mining case was a derivative action, uh, the case would likely not have been filed, and the fiduciaries would have gone away with a multi-billion dollar free lunch. There is also yet another effect non-litigation parts of corporate law. For example, shareholder activism, which is mainly about stuff like voting, proxy contests, and other things that happen outside of the courtroom, actually depend on the well-functioning of courts of equity that have to intervene in situations where the directors try to change the rules of the game in some inequitable way. Think, for example, about how Delaware closely scrutinizes the terms of poison pill if you did not have the Delaware courts say, well, this crosses the line, the director could simply put in a poison pill that makes it largely impossible to carry out activist campaigns or to engage in stewardship and other things that we talk about very often. And to make things even worse in the corporate governance context, I cite in my article two works by Professor Michal Barzuza uh, from the University of Virginia, who shows that the corporations who are most likely to get mandatory arbitration in their charters or bylaws are precisely those corporations where bad conduct is more likely to occur. So lawsuits might become impossible precisely where lawsuits are most needed. While there are conceivable situations where arbitration would be a better solution than litigation, on the whole, I believe a move from equitable litigation to mandatory arbitration would be a very negative occurrence for the corporate governance world. In the paper, you talk about two recent court developments, the Salzburg case, also known as the Shabakuki case, and Johnson & Johnson. I wondered if you can maybe discuss those developments and what impact they might have on this discussion and debate, where they might be pointing toward corporate arbitration in the future. These are two really, really interesting cases, and I devote part one of the article to discussing uh, what they do, what they say, how they interact with one another, and what is their effect in the mandatory arbitration context. Let me start by discussing uh, the first case, the Salzburg case, uh, which was decided last March by the Delaware Supreme Court. And then I'll talk about the other case, the Johnson & Johnson case, which is currently still pending in federal court. The Salzburg case was actually not about mandatory arbitration per se. In Salzburg, the question was as follows. Can you put a provision in a corporate charter or in the corporation's bylaws that governs the substantive rights and duties that arise outside of Delaware Court? And this might sound like a big question, but it's very uh, simple to understand if we look at it in the context of this case. Specifically in Salzburg, the question was about federal securities litigation. Can you send federal securities cases to one court rather than another by putting that forum selection provision in the corporation's charter or bylaw? Again, federal securities law is something that is external to Delaware corporate law. It's not a state law matter. It's a federal matter. The question arose, well, if I think that cases would be better handled in one court rather than another, can I direct cases to that court by putting that provision in my charter or bylaws. On March 18th last year, uh, the Delaware Supreme Court gave us the answer to that question. It reversed the Chancery Court's decision, and it said, yes, it is now possible to regulate certain non-corporate law relationships using the corporation's organic documents, meaning its charter or bylaws. So how does this relate to mandatory arbitration? 
Here we get to the Johnson Johnson. Uh, Johnson Johnson was filed in 2019, and it is expected to be decided very soon. There was sort of a long series of amended complaints and motions to dismiss in that case, but I think it might be decided as soon as February or March uh, this year. In the Johnson and Johnson case, we have a somewhat unusual procedural posture. We have a shareholder who wants to put an arbitration clause in the corporation's bylaws. In most cases, shareholders really don't like it. They want to be able to go to court, to litigate in court, and not be barred by a mandatory arbitration clause. But that specific shareholder is a proponent of mandatory arbitration. And even more importantly, as I explained in the article, the arguments that he raises in the Johnson & Johnson case are also likely to be raised by directors and other people in other corporations in the near future when they would try to impose mandatory arbitration on their corporations and on their show. So what does the arbitration proponent in the Johnson & Johnson case actually says? He says this, I want the corporation to arbitrate rather than litigate all securities cases that are filed against whether it's under the 1933 Act, the 1934 Act, I don't want these cases to go to court. And as we have seen in the consumer and employment law context, I also want to waive the right to bring any class action, which would practically negate a lot of cases because securities law is mostly about a small harm being done to lots of people. That's why class actions are so prevalent in security law. So we have a classic AT&T v. Concepcion style situation where arbitration operates against, not for, the efficient resolution of disputes. Before the Salzburg decision, clearly you couldn't do what the arbitration proponent in Johnson & Johnson is trying to do by using the corporation's bylaws or charter. After Salzburg, it might superficially appear possible to send securities cases to mandatory arbitration by putting such a provision in the corporation's charter or bio. But why did I say superficial? That is because there is another dimension or another question in the Johnson & Johnson. And that question is much less favorable to proponents of arbitration compared to the issue that has been decided in the Salzburg case, which I believe is the somewhat less cardinal issue when it comes to arbitration. So the more predominant question is this. Does the Federal Arbitration Act apply to corporate charters and bylaws in the first place? Because if it does not, then you cannot even start talking about applying all of these AT&T-style decisions saying do not file class actions, all of this bad stuff. And in order to do that, as I have said a few minutes ago, for the FAA, the Federal Arbitration Act, to apply to corporate charters and bylaws, the federal courts would have to determine that these documents are contracts. As the Supreme Court says, there always has to be a contract for something to come under the scope of the federal arbitration. So if a case like Johnson & Johnson, or maybe a future case where uh, similar arguments are raised, comes out saying that the Federal Arbitration Act applies, we might see, perhaps as soon as the next couple of years, mandatory arbitration coming into both the securities landscape and the corporate law landscape. Uh, it might start in the securities area, but I think it might really very, very easily slide into corporate law because once you've said this stuff is contract, then what prevents you from also putting it in the corporation's charter or bylaws in regard to internal affairs, state corporate law claims, along the way also saying, well, the Delaware legislature's prohibition on arbitrating internal affairs dispute is actually preempted by the federal arbitration. 
And of course, if this happens, this would entail all the bad outcomes we've just discussed. And part two of my article shows why such a determination cannot and should not be made by the federal courts. I'd like to turn to that second part of the article, and, and you stake out a position that the corporation, its charter, its bylaws are not a contract. And so I'd, I'd love for you to elaborate on that a little bit. And uh, if they aren't contracts, I would be curious to hear some of your thoughts on how we've gotten to a point that contractarian framing really predominates when we talk about corporations. As I show in part two of the article, the corporate law framework is actually quite different from contract law. This also means that corporate charters and bylaws are not contracts, and so the Federal Arbitration Act cannot apply. To be certain, over the last four decades, since the mid-70s or the early 80s, we often hear phrases such as nexus of contracts, private ordering, etc., coming from scholars in the vein of Easterbrook and Fischel and many others. And this sort of framing has a certain intuitive appeal. After all, corporate law seems like it involves consensual actions by consenting parties. If I buy a share of Apple or Microsoft, I am consenting to do this action. But what I'm showing in the article is that this fact does not turn corporate law into contract law, and it does not turn the corporation's charter or bylaws into a contract. To be certain, it might be the case that we have not really paid enough attention to classifications and categories over the last few decades, especially when it comes to corporate law. I uh, tend to kind of generally talk about certain documents as if they were contracts, even though we recognize that they have many characteristics that diverge from a regular contract. The mandatory arbitration example shows that we have to clearly and convincingly break from the contract metaphor. So the most important thing to understand about what makes corporate law so different from contract law is that corporate law is an ex post framework. The difference between the two frameworks is really temporal. While contract law is about ex-ante promises that can be enforced in court in the manner they were initially made, corporate law is about what happened after the fact. And I'll give you an example. Um, the charter of a corporation like IBM says the corporation can engage in any lawful act or activity. It does not say Microsoft or IBM is to make software or computer chips. It can go into any other line of business. It can have very large revenues or it can even financially fail and the shareholders would not get any remedy. All of these things are quite contrary to what uh, defines contracts under contract law doctrine and theory. Furthermore, the business judgment, which is one of the most readily recognized concepts in corporate law, also uh, gives us a, a really something that really strongly diverges from contract. Because in contract law, you have an ex-ante promise that you have to fulfill. In the corporate context, stuff like the business judgment rule says, I'm not promising you anything in advance. The corporation and its directors and officers have an extremely unconstrained freedom of action to engage in various adventures and endeavors. And what happens after the fact is that we do sort of a fiduciary duty analysis to see, well, along the way, did they breach any of the duties that they owe to the corporate entity and its shareholders? But there is no clear contractual promise to begin with. Corporate law is all about what happens after the fact. It's about concepts of fiduciary duty and equity that are applied by courts. And again, this is obviously very, very important in the mandatory arbitration question, because if you do not have, then who will supervise all of this open-endedness? 
that is going on? Who will make sure that when the corporate entity and its fiduciaries embark on these open-ended adventures, they do so in a way that is beneficial, that actually comports with the reason that shareholders have invested in the corporation in the first place? The really only way to do it is through the unique mechanism that corporate law makes available to corporate entities, to shareholders, to enforce their rights against their fiduciaries. And a mandatory arbitration would be obviously a strong countermeasure to, to the possibility of these rights being enforced. So we cannot like mandatory arbitration in the corporate context. It is not a contractual framework. It is not meant to be a contractual framework. And if we tried to ox it into a contractual framework, we would lose many of corporate law's benefits. We would lose all the good stuff that the open-endedness of corporate law allows us to achieve. For that reason, I believe that both the federal courts and scholars should remain mindful of the differences between corporate and contract law, differences that really go to the most basic structural level and are most obviously important in the mandatory arbitration context. But I believe it doesn't stop there. I take my article to be sort of a starting point or an opportunity to inquire into these theoretical questions, going out from a very troubling process, which is the possibility of mandatory arbitration entering the corporate law sphere, I wish to turn that into an opportunity to take a closer look at the theoretical foundations of corporate law and what makes it a distinct framework within private law. What takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation or from the paper? So the first key takeaway that I would urge is to remember that corporate law is corporate. In other words, it is not contract law, it is not agency law, it is not property law. We often encounter scholarship that says, well, even if not contract law, corporate law is really all about delineating between rules of property, or corporate law is really about agency problems and agency costs. I urge the reader to think about corporate law as a distinct self-standing category within our legal system that does its own thing. It is meant to achieve its own social and economic objectives, and it does so in a specific, uh, unique corporate way. That's the first key takeaway that does not apply only in the mandatory arbitration context. I think it it can and should apply across the board when we come uh, corporate law. The second key takeaway is that when we start seeing cases about mandatory arbitration, which I think might happen as soon as in the next couple of years, and that is assuming that the Johnson Johnson case does not go all the way to, let's say, the Third Circuit or the U.S. Supreme Court, I think we should really remember this core distinction between corporations and contracts. The corporation is not a contract. Its charter and bylaws are not contracts. And because the Federal Arbitration Act can only apply if there is a contract, we cannot import mandatory arbitration into corporate law. That would be a really bad move. It would negate much of what we think, study, consider to be core mechanism of corporate law. We do not want that to happen. Let us continue to make corporate law healthy and enforceable through the courtroom. I believe this can be achieved. I believe the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal courts can and should pay attention to this nuance, which is really important and has very strong bearing on the daily operation of business organizations. Our guest has been Asaf Raz, a research fellow at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School. We've discussed his paper, Mandatory Arbitration and the Boundaries of Corporate Law, which I'll link to in the show notes for the episode. Asaf, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. 
My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.